This episode is brought to you by Saga Fitness, the creators of the world's first wireless BFR cuffs. Now, if you don't know what BFR means or you don't know what these cuffs are, BFR is just short for blood flow restriction, and it's also known as occlusion training. And it's an effective technique that has tons of research behind it that can help increase muscle size, strength, improve aerobic capacity, accelerate recovery, all in a shorter amount of time. Now, specific applications, I think of my father. My father is a little bit older, and he is scheduled to have some surgeries done here pretty soon. And my father is not a big strength training guy, right? I love him to death, um, but he's not somebody that's super active and he doesn't lift weights regularly. And he's going to deal with a fair amount of atrophy from some of the things he's going to have done to his shoulder. And he's also going to have to have a knee replacement. And these are going to be used as part of his physical therapy recovery program because he's going to have to use lighter weights to be able to rehabilitate. And that's a lot of what occlusion training can help with as well. He can actually see faster gains in muscle strength and size using very light weights, which can help him during his recovery. So these are not just for bodybuilders or professional athletes. These have a wide range of applications and you should check it out. So learn more by visiting artofcoaching.com forward slash partners. Click on the Saga logo. And if you use code BRETT20, that's B-R-E-T-T-2-0, you will get 20% off. Again, that's artofcoaching.com forward slash partners. Click on the Saga logo and use code BRETT20. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. All right, we have something unique for you today, and I'm not quite sure of the broadcasting term for this. So to give you context, uh, a while back I was on a podcast with my friend, Scott Livingston. He's the owner and creator of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Make sure to check that out. And also his friend and, and my newfound friend, Dom Gautier, who is a hugely influential mind in the Canadian Olympic realm. He's a business leader. He's a coach. He's a mentor. He's a broadcaster. He's a former Olympic mogul skier. So I think this is very, very timely with the Olympics going on. And we are talking about the role that communication plays in common misunderstandings of it. Because here's the thing. And if you're not a strength coach, you know, this is, this is something that you'll almost probably laugh at yourself. But, you know, the majority of our content generated at Art of Coaching came from my innate fascination of what makes people so resistant to change and how simple tweaks in your messaging, a la communication or approach can alter that behavior. I mean, we all know that people routinely get in their own way due to fear and a lack of self-awareness. And I remember how angry some coaches in my field got, even when I was working with other organizations in a wide variety of corporate realms, right? Whether there's technology or finance, there were a lot of people in strength and conditioning that got really mad when I said, hey, 
communication is important and we need to focus a little bit more on the research and application of this because they felt like I was telling them that training isn't important or sets and reps aren't important anymore. And the commercialization of strength and conditioning has largely been predicated on those things. I mean, people spend millions of dollars a year collectively on conferences that would help them learn new exercises or teach them a new training tool or give them technology. And on the other end of that, fewer than 4% of conferences were even about anything related to communication. So the art of coaching in general, right, that that term started becoming kind of, there were people that were like, oh, is that just like soft and warm and fuzzy tactics? And, and we would always say, no, the art of coaching in all of its contexts, especially what we do as a company, is about identifying, recognizing, and adapting to variables that impact human performance. Now, if you're a stockbroker, that's going to be the market and people's emotions. If you're a surgeon, right, there's a million things from decision-making and bias and the complexity of things that you have to to figure out and how you have to communicate in the ER. Uh, If you're a lawyer, right, that's the narrative you have to weave together based on facts to convince a jury, right? There are variables in all these things. So the art of coaching is social science meets real life. And we believe as does Dom and Scott, that anybody serious about performance, let alone helping others, should not be okay with this asymmetry, right? Where professionals are getting taught the technical aspects of what they do in that kind of a domain, but not the domain of human communication. And, you know, we also share the idea that those who think they're good enough at communication generally don't have objective data to even back that. There's so many misunderstandings. So the reason I say I don't know the broadcast term for this is we had such a good discussion on Scott's podcast that we wanted to put it here as a bonus episode for you. Now, that's not a simulcast because I think that's, you know, when multiple broadcasts are happening at one time. And right now there's all this stuff going on, whether it's uh, in movies about multiverses and whatever. So I'm making up my own term. This is a multicast. So you could hear it one place. You can now hear it here. It's myself, Scott Livingston, and Dom Gauthier talking about the misconceptions of communication, why we think we're so good at it, and learning how to redefine the way we speak to and about it. So if you know somebody who really needs to work on interpersonal skills, and and maybe they're skeptical, or maybe your staff is skeptical about that because they still view it as this kind of warm, fuzzy, non-tangible thing, share this with them. Our uh, One of our team members, Ali Kirshner, does amazing podcast reflections. They were all completely free to you. They are for every episode, every single episode we have them. If you just go to artofcoaching.com forward slash podcast reflections, couldn't be easier. You can print that off. You can have conversations with your staff about this and maybe see where your own misinterpretations and misattributions occurred around this topic. Guys, I can't wait to bring this to you. Without further ado, myself, Scott Livingston, and Dom Gautier. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark and the Performance Conversations with Dom and Scott. And today we have uh, a guest with us uh, that I'm really honored to have in the house, Brett Bartholomew. Brett and I have a, a nice podcast cat, cat, uh, podcast history, excuse my befuddlement there, uh, chatting about a lot of different things uh, in human performance. And Dom and I love talking human performance and sport performance. And so we invited Brett to talk today because... You know, our subject for the last few weeks has been around coaching, specifically a little bit around coaching women and women in coaching and women in sport. And 
we'll play around in that box is again, but Brett has a particular um, background and interest and wrote the book cut conscious coaching and is also writing another book right now and has done a lot is doing his PhD in this area of communication and uh, performance communication and stuff. So we want to get into sort of, you know, what, what makes a coach a coach? What, what are some of the deficits maybe still today? And it was funny, I was kind of doing a little perusal of the internet, uh, the interweb knowledge paradigm um, before. And I found this little study, which I'm sure I'm not the greatest um, scientist, Brett, so you'll, you'll uh, forgive me. But it was interesting to me because it was a group that had done uh, um, with the USOC had done a, an assessment in 1988. And then again, in 2007 about, you know, coaching and coaching development, et cetera. And you will like this because uh, what they basically said was um, that still today, the biggest focus of most, most coaches on what their um, the, the key tr- things they should be working on are their technical, tactical information, knowledge, and sort of their, you know, all the things around, you know, doing the job versus the idea of communication. And then they go and talk about later on after sort of delineating those things as the key ones, even 88 to 2007, they start talking about some of the qualities that make an elite coach and they get, you know, first and foremost is communication, but they don't talk about the fact that they should be sort of educating themselves and, and, developing themselves in that area of, of understanding. So I thought I'd lead with that in some sense, because I know it's a bone in your or craw or thorn in your craw. Um, and just to sort of cycle into this is, you know, when we look back 20, 30 years ago, we were all coached uh, in some ways by this, the, the old adage was, you know, walk softly and carry a big stick and people would kind of go around and you, you, you know, the coach would, would observe and then hammer you with some kind of insight as to what you should be doing. And, and over the last 20, 30 years, we've started to get a little bit more empathetic in our approach and, you know, soft skills and all this stuff. But it seems like we haven't had the educational process to really backstop that. So, you know, I'm interested to hear both from you and from Dom, you know, where, where, where should we be going and how should we be doing this better? So I'll start with you, Brett, because you're our guest. And then if Dom, you want to chime in on the same subject, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on a little bit of, you know, of course, what people believe because value is subjective. But if we if we do use literature to to back this up. You know, there's a great meta-analysis from 2016 saying that out of 285 coach development uh, workshops, fewer than 6% focus on interpersonal skills. Uh, and those those 6% generally are around transformational leadership. And, you know, we've, we've dove into why, because uh, there's no shortage of research, especially in the sport coaching space. I think of people like uh, Christopher J. Cushion and Kathy Armour and Robin Jones have done great work on this. Uh, even leaning on the work of, of people like Pierre Bordeaux to kind of look at the art of coaching and the role it plays. But they have a great article called Coach Education and Learning to Coach. And, you know, one of the things they talk about is that, you know, it's, it's, real, it's real simple. Coaching is, is an individual and a social process, right? And because of that nature, right, it's inextricably linked to the constraints of human interaction. I mean, by definition, one cannot coach which coaching is defined as a social process without understanding communication. I, I think part of the issue as we've dove into this further is because it's, 
it's not a rational barrier, right? It's not like people don't know that they need to communicate, uh, you know, in order to, to be a more effective coach. What we found through semi-structured interviews and other things is, uh, one, there's, there's not a clear idea on most people of what communication really is. Most of them will say they agree it's critical. They think that for outcomes to be achieved, one must communicate. However, communication has been grossly oversimplified to just mean verbal, nonverbal, and, and cueing. So part of that is, is, again, just people not understanding what communication is. The other aspect of, of when we look at this, of why has this been the case, uh, and I'll butcher this last name, so I apologize, but a gentleman with the last name Lefevre, I think, and Evans in another 2016 article said that the reason for this obsession near fetishization of technical tactical emphasis aligns with this traditional concept of, of what makes an effective coach, right? Are they using drills that seem to be effective? Do they have world-class facilities or resources, right? When you look at communication and social aspects, many people believe it's less difficult to measure objectively. I think what's really dangerous about that, when I hear people say this is a soft skill, we're not able to measure it, we're not able to manage it, I think folks forget about uh, the fact that marketing is a degree and there is, I mean, uh, a, a wealth of research in the marketing literature that shows everything from when are people most likely to open their emails to what kinds of messaging should Disney or Ford or, uh, you know, FAF use in their communication strategies and marketing. I mean, it's alarming to me that people think that Coca-Cola will spend upwards of $10 million on a Super Bowl ad without any analytics of how to frame their messaging and their storytelling so that it connects with people. And so when you look at behavioral science, when you look at marketing, when you look at communications-based degrees, our entire world is engineered in order to convey messaging to us in either a direct or indirect manner, or what we talk about in conscious coaching, central messaging, which involves uh, higher order thought, right? Us picking apart an argument, somebody uh, sending an advertisement to us through facts or research, or even what I'm doing now, I'm appealing through central messaging versus peripheral messaging, right? Peripheral is how attractive is that model? Um, is that a jingle I like? Is this Brett Bartholomew, somebody maybe I've never heard of telling me about this or Greg Popovich, right? Because we even see that, you know, three of us could get very technical about aspects of the art of coaching and social science and behavior change. But if all of a sudden comes Greg Popovich or another coach, maybe somebody from the Canadian Coaching Hall of Fame, and people that that is more representative of those that audience's aspirational self, well, they could give a whole thing on cliches, and and people would still say we like that better. So, looking at this and then understanding that there's also to date. And, and maybe I'm mistaken, but at least when we did kind of our lit review, there's been no singular agreed upon definition of coaching. There's only agreed upon that it is a social endeavor, uh, that that doesn't help as well. Uh, so you pair all this, Scott, uh, with, with the fact that most people think they're already good at communication. It's not taught. It's not just the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's, it's the better than average effect. This idea of uh, Dunning-Kruger is right. We, we all think we're better at it than we really are in general. Better than average is that's even more amplified when that thing we're being graded on is perceived as morally virtuous or is desirable by a certain population. That's like a force multiplier. So I, I'm glad you asked that question because this 
as needed to almost be therapeutic for me to figure these things out, why we ignore it. But that's, that's kind of been the bedrock of what we found. And I don't want to go on a, a further monologue, um, but I, you know, we can go deeper, but that's kind of the, the foundation of it. You could go on a monologue speaking that way, if you ask me. It's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, I don't to want to bore you guys or disrespect you. <laughs> no, so. no, no, no. This is wicked. I mean, I mean, I've been a coach uh, for you know, half my my sporting life, I guess, and communication is so critical to me. And I love what you're saying. I've been working mainly with individual athletes myself. I mean, only actually. I've never coached a team. So from what I'm hearing from you, is it's all about customizing pretty much your approach, right? Like it's not cookie cutter. Like the way you communicate or the way it will be received. Uh, is very different from one athlete to the next. So when it's an individual sport like I've been dealing with, well, pretty easy to know how to tailor my 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 approach. How do you do it with teams though? Like, yeah. is, there, do you, is there a different technique or approach to it or not? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's one of the most common questions we get or, uh, you know, I once had somebody decide to, I guess they wanted to test me because their organization brought me in and he said he, fl- he throws his roster. This was a college football coach throws his roster at me and says, I got 150 people. Tell me how to coach them all. And I was like, like, what, <laughs> what an interesting way to pose. Well, first of all, this is our first introduction. Right. Um, and what I found fascinating by that, because I, I my experience was mainly with groups. Right. And so I, th- I think that what's odd about it is this idea that people think that you go in and you sl- like, you spike this scepter into the ground and that there's this one thing. Well, I don't know about either of you guys, I guess, Tom, you gave me some insight into your expertise, but you know, if you're coaching large groups, chances are these people are with you for a while. Right. And if we're using the college football coach as an example, in this situation, generally, unless they transfer or what have you, they're going to have them for at least uh, three to four years. Right. Of course there's injuries and transfer and what have you, but you know, this isn't something that you try to gavage or attack all at once. These are micro interactions that you have over the course of the relationship you build with these people. You know, if I, if all of a sudden uh, 14 pro athletes were sent to me today, I don't think about day one being this ceremonial love them up, you know, tell me everything about you guys. This is stuff that it, it might be a jab, 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 right hook, right? General coaching, general coaching, general coaching. Hey, what it, what made sense to you about that cue? Hey, what did you like? How'd you get into football? You know, what are one of the things that, you know, you just start, this is basic talk, right? And, and that's where people struggle is they want to overcomplicate this thing that granted is very complex, but the reality is they don't listen, Dom. How you do it with large groups is you talk a good bit because it disarms them. It's, it's welcoming. It's not a parasocial relationship when they get a feel for you. And then when they do give you something, you listen to it and you dig a little bit deeper. And that's, that's simple constructs of theory of mind, right? Like this idea that I have to have a recognition that you're thinking something else than I'm thinking. Or even while I'm talking, it's not just you and me, Dom, or Scott, for that matter. All of you are listening to what I'm saying, thinking about either a past situation that resonates or something you want to say. And then I'm thinking about how I can be more useful and what other examples I should bring in. So now there's maybe six to nine voices going on, you know, but I, I think so good. Yeah. I, I think the critical thing to your point, if I can be more succinct is it's, it's micro interactions over the long term, learning how to listen so that you can reframe and ultimately reflect their language back at them. Like my, my, I think of the guy I just got done training Jack, Jack is towards the end of his NFL career. 
Um, Jack likes to joke around, keep it lighthearted, whatever. You know, and I said, you're a pretty laid back guy when I first met him. It's our fourth year. And he goes, listen, dude, like my entire life is structured in the NFL. And prior to that, it was structured playing sports prior to the NFL. He goes, training for me is a means to an end and I still want to enjoy it. Great. It's not hard to pick five other athletes like Jack in our group of 20 that are like that because you know what? They gravitate to Jack and Jack gravitates to them. And we see that interaction. And then we see this technician kind of subgroup that they may not want to talk much. They're, they want to be coached at everything. So this is kind of what led to the construction of my book of these archetypical personas that are by no means saying these athletes or individuals are monolithic, and this is how you deal with them all the time. Mm -hmm. But it gives you subtle cues of how to start the interaction and guide it and see what else you might be able to excavate. But gee whiz, I guess that's a lot of work to some folks because what I heard early on, and we don't hear this much now, is well, I don't have time for that. And so I remember I had this slide of Batman backhanding Robin. And it's like, that's your job. Your job. So let me get this straight. You have time to set up bands and chains and pneumatic resistance-based machines and your bungees and your hurdles. And they're all lined up meticulously. And yet you don't have time for this. It really gives a lot of insight as to who got into coaching because they like sport and exercise and who got into it because they actually want to deal with people. Mm-hmm. Really good. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, in listening to you, the, there's this kind of confluence. And I think that you, you, it's become far more clear over the last 10 years that to your point, and I commend you for the work you're doing, Brett, and can't wait to come down and spend some time after I've been released from the uh, constraints of it's never ending. Is it? Are you guys still locked down? We are still, <laughs> I won't even get into that, my friend, but anyways, um, the, the, the thing that's interesting to me is like, if you look historically back at coaching and you made a good point, I mean, a lot of what's the raison d'etre for a lot of people going into coaching? Well, they love sport. They want to work with people. They want to help people, et cetera, et cetera. And they're usually taught. So first of all, you're an athlete. So you've been told how to do everything by somebody before you. And I would say it's only probably in the last 10, 15 years and, and maybe even in the last 10 where we started to actually have conversations about what I would call athlete autonomy in other words teaching your athlete you know why they're doing what they're doing most of the time it was basically do do what i tell you to do and shut up and do it you know and so that was kind of the the strategy so these people became coaches so their strategy for coaching was i tell you what to do and you listen to what i tell you and we go forward and so then this dissonance started probably 10, 15 years ago where, and, and you see that sort of marked as well by the increases in salaries and pro sports and even in Olympic sport, people being able to generate income, et cetera, and sort of having this independence and the athlete actually asking the question, why am I doing this? And a lot of these coaches are like, well, um, you know, didn't know how to sort of shift. And there were certain coaches who had sort of made that shift to your point, maybe had a different raison d'etre for being in coaching who took it upon themselves to learn about the mindset, learn about how they communicated, whether that was, um, done through a, through a didactic means or whether they did that through, you know, the nature of reading and, and connecting and mentorship and everything else. And I would argue that for the most part, and I'd love to hear your point, but up until now, I think the art of communication has been uh, guided downwards through a mentorship and apprenticeship model and not through a didactic learning model, so to speak. So now, you know, there's that, that model is very difficult to, 
make happen for everybody because there's so much out there, you know, and so the idea of being able to actually go and learn this stuff and know that you do it or don't do it is new for people. But why they don't why they don't value it, my interpretation is um, that they don't recognize that they don't, to your point, don't recognize that they don't do it poorly or that they do it poorly. Um, and that they've never, that's never actually been emphasized to them. Like Dom, you tell me as a coach, how was communication emphasized to you and your coach development? Huh? Actually not, not much. It was all again, it's, we call it the art of coaching. Well, it was art. You, you, you had it or you don't, right. You created it. And for me, communication was, was key from the start. I mean, I mean, there is some courses where they address it, but it's not like, it's not like someone mentored me into it, right? Like from an organized, you know, coaching course or whatever that we have here in Canada. And I mean, it's, I think we're being taught a lot of the skills, um, technical skills, tactical, but definitely when it comes to this, you know, emotional intelligence, it's kind of like, well, you have it or you don't. And then that's what often makes you end up being a good coach or, or, or not. And, and for me, it was always critical. And I think, Brett, it's probably the way you are doing it as well as we, we travel. I was a ski coach, so we travel a lot, uh, nine months a year in the same hotels and stuff. So we were able to develop that relationship with the athletes. And, and it's not every coaches that has that luxury or not, but uh, where you get to get that, you know, d- really deep relationship. We're, we're to a point, it's, it's almost, you know, uh, detrimental because you're together so much. But my point is that I would always like make my plans and then, you know, the key moment for me was not when I was on the ski hill, was really at breakfast. And that's when I would really read them, you know, not just ask the typical, hey, how you doing? What's up? Like, but just like read them, look at how they go to the buffet, grab their cereals and stuff. And, and from there, I would, I would kind of adjust my plan. And that's how I would tailor things to, to their body language or their actual language. And I, and I think that's what people don't don't value enough. This is where it matters. It's all around. It's how they are when they show up. How do you see them walking in the parking lot? I think, you know, even if you're not traveling with them, look at them, you know, how do they walk with their bag, like showing up at the rink or on the field or whatever. And, and I think as coaches, it's not thought, I I think it's everyone sees the, or understand there's a value there. And, you know, reading books like your book, I think will, will resonate with a lot of people, but uh, it's also something that's tough to coach, right? Like, I mean, other than mentoring, I, I don't think you can learn that in books. Can you? Uh, no, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you said that because, well, the short answer to your question is no. And, and that goes again to the, the origin of this issue of, again, this inattentional blindness. And then you have to look at the way most coaches learn. You know, research asserts that and common sense when we all look at it. Most coaches learn to coach through either coaching how they were coached or coaching how somebody they view as a successful coach coaches, Um, you know, and, and so, and then again, most coaches, they'll go to books you think about the the pay scale, right? It's not a lucrative profession. People don't get into it for the money. Uh, So they tend to go to books as opposed to more context rich mediums, such as uh, maybe online courses or live events. And then if they do go to live events, this stuff, I think what's interesting is for, for a highly skeptical audience, 
that views itself as very self-aware and, and very, I don't know, somewhat just practical. I don't think that they fully realize how much the commercialization of tools and tactics has gripped them, right? They, most of the clinics that they do go to are selling training methods, avant-garde strategies, what have you. When you, you know, you look at the art of coaching, it can essentially be characterized as a form of structured improvisation. All right, guys, quick interruption here. I want to tell you about something. You know, I never had a mentor directly in my life. Of course, I've learned from a wide variety of people, and uh, but I never had somebody walk me through it all the way, it being whether that was my coaching, my business, how to write a book, anything like that. And more importantly, I didn't really identify with a lot of these mentoring groups out there that seemed really money-focused or status-focused. You know, a lot of times I just wanted something that could help me gain some clarity, maybe give me some accountability, and just get me building momentum because I can get in my own way. And because we couldn't find that, we created something of our own, and it's called The Coalition. It is open to people from all walks of life. We have had a wide variety of professions represented. And what it is, is it's an intensive six-month mentoring program with myself and other professionals. It's a place where no matter where you're at, if you're just getting started in your career or you've been doing something for 30 years, if you just feel like you're a little bit lonely and you want other people to talk to about a business idea you have or something you want to do, maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's a book, maybe it's just the way you deal with things in your relationships and you're looking for people that don't want to just rah-rah all of it away. They want to give you tactics. They want to share stories and strategies of their own. This is what we do. And we are accepting applications for our November group. Again, it's six months. All these calls are recorded. We've had tons of international folks come. So don't worry about the time zone you're in. Don't worry about what country you're in. Just worry about putting skin in the game and investing in a group of people that want to help you artofcoaching.com forward slash coalition. We will have these selected by the time it starts in November. So do not waste time. Usually when we announce this on the podcast, this stuff fills up in a matter of a month, maybe two. And while I'm recording this, this is now the start of August. And if you're listening to this sometime in the future, still go to artofcoaching.com forward slash coalition. We do this twice a year. We're always running some aspect of it. We'd be honored to have you. Again, artofcoaching.com forward slash coalition, get the community you need, gain clarity, build momentum with people like you. I think what's interesting is for, for a highly skeptical audience that views itself as very self-aware and, and very, I don't know, somewhat just practical. I don't think that they fully realize how much the commercialization of tools and tactics has gripped them, right? They, most of the clinics that they do go to are selling training methods, avant-garde strategies, what have you. When you, you know, you look at the art of coaching, it can essentially be characterized as a form of structured improvisation, right? Like, and, and we know that experience is crucial to, to structuring that kind of practice. And so if we think about how one learns and how one teaches and what is being taught and the context it's being taught, these things are devoid of any kind of uh, uh, facilitated interpersonal guidance in coaching. They are because you think you learn just through being on the floor. You think you learn just by doing internships. Well, of course, you can learn how to command groups and, and uh, uh, enhance technical proficiency, but you don't necessarily gain self-awareness by being on the floor, mm -hmm. especially if you're around a bunch of people, much like in academia. A good friend of mine is 
in academia and he talks about how you know a lot of the feedback forms have been altered to essentially be protective of of professors right like they they don't want to deal with a lot of change well we see this within in groups and coaching we see this in the various organizations that created there was a very uh well-known coaching conference that just went on down here in the united states where it's very much like this i mean you would think guys it's west side story with all these people and their jumpsuits and their polos snapping their fingers representing their university and the presentations are less about anything truly didactic and more about this is why we squat, you know, and then you, it's, it's very defensive. And so one, one thing we started to look at within that, if we look at the art of coaching as a form of structured improvisation is okay, well, let's look at, let's look at that word. And we go to education. And uh, again, this is all kind of part of the, the founding argument of my doctorate. So I'm trying to give context is we look at teaching. What are teachers' conceptions of, of improvisation? Because one thing I know working with military is they don't need to be sold on this. Whenever I go present for the military on any of these things related communication, role playing, there, there's the 20 slides that I usually have to lead with, with research and whatever, don't need to be discussed. And I know that because I did that one time with my own naivete and a member of the soft community stopped me and said, we don't need to hear this, this, you know, move, shoot and communicate is, is a lot of what we have to do or, or we're dead. You know, you don't need to sell us on that. Get on with it. Let's talk tactics. Right. Whereas if I presented a sports science seminar now, you know, these people speak the language of literature. So you have to, you have to do that. So um, if we think about this stuff and, and giving you some insight on, on what it says in education, and, and by the way, you see this in the medical community as well, about $12 million is lost every year. And this was a 2015 statistic yeah, due to uh, litigious issues in, in medical type situations based on doctors not communicating well, based on client and healthcare provider interactions, any of these things. But uh, if we look at um, yeah, like the root of improvisation and people are going to have different uh, interpretations of this, but if we look at the root word, it's improvisus, right? So improv, I-S-U-S. And that's a Latin word that literally translates to the un unforeseen, right? And we know that to improvise is to be open to new perspectives and new actions and new constraints. The things that inevitably are, are what surround the coaching process and not just coaching, mind you, let's, let's not act like coaching is a sport centric term. Coaching is management. Coaching is guidance of any kind. Right When you're trying to lead people in an orchestrated effort to alter a behavior or achieve an outcome, you're a coach. And that's why we decided with our company, we weren't going to show any kind of athletic or body health performance centric imagery because we're trying to appeal to a wider demographic. I think the thing that breaks my heart is that we have immediate buy-in from the medical field, legal community, talk about communication, right? Uh, um, military all these things, yet coaches are the biggest pain in the ass, yet who do a lot of coaches draw inspiration from? You know, I can go into 15 houses of different coaches I know right now, and they're going to have, you know, military-based books and, and books by this, but it's almost like they don't want to do the dirty work, Dom. And I, I'm only addressing you here because Scott and I have talked about it, and I want to invite you in, is like, it's messy, right? Think of your past experiences. How many experiences, whether it be in, in um, romantic relationships, your coaching your, your professional speaking, all the things you've done throughout your career, how many of those conflicts came down to 
communication-based situations that you couldn't have anticipated until they happened. Right, yeah. Most. Right. So like we, we have to get people, I guess the, the take home message of what I'm saying is if we know the origin of these issues, part of the solution is changing the way people view the word communication, right? So that it's not so nebulous. And we've done that by talking about the byproducts of poor communication, right? Like the one thing guaranteed, and this is the only time I'll speak in absolutes. The one thing I can guarantee is poor communication will make every situation in life worse. Every. So, you know, I, we have to unfortunately sometimes use fear based tactics of saying, yeah, you can choose not to work on communication, but don't be surprised when it costs you your job, a relationship, some credibility, an opportunity. The, the byproducts of it are clear. And then we also have to change the perception of the art of coaching and improv. Because when I ask people in semi structured interviews, hey, what's your, what's your, um, what's your perception of the word improv? Now, you know, a comedy, uh, laughter, whatever, really the direct correlate to this is adaptability, right? Uh, improv is to adaptability mm-hmm. what, what sound decision-making is to pragmatism. And uh, that's, so getting people to change the way they view these things so that they understand that, okay, I recognize there's these problems in my life. Here's an alternative. Here's the language I know that, that suggests this is the alternative I should choose. And then you've got to make it appealing because if you go to a training workshop, right, Scott, if you go to, if you went to like when I worked at athletes performance, if you guys came for a mentorship, you're coming to an idyllic setting with hot tubs and cold tubs in a world-class weight room. You're in your happy zone. You get to work out. You get to learn how many people wake up in the morning. They're like, I am really ready to get uncomfortable and do some role-playing with some hard shit under constraints around people that are going to judge me. Mm-hmm. I, I love that, uh, Brett. And it, um, you know, I'm, I'm just finished reading the book. I don't know if you've seen it. I think I forwarded to you called At- the attributes written by Rich Davini, who's a former Navy SEAL. And I'm actually going to talk to Rich this afternoon about attributes. And he basically distills down this idea of these different sort of categories of, um, call them psychological attributes. Uh, uh, for example, like he looks at, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you an example of leadership. Uh, he, he's got uh, grit, the grit attributes, the mental acuity attributes, the drive attributes, leadership attributes. In leadership, there's things like empathy, selflessness, authenticity, dri- decisiveness, accountability. Not to get into all of that, but, you know, he looks at attrib- skill versus attribute. A skill is something that can be taught didactically and then basically practiced and refined or honed. Whereas in attributes, it's basically an innate and in essence forged rather than learned. It's something you have inside you that you need to forge and you forge it through putting yourself in stress, challenge, uncertainty, and essentially effectively pressure tested. So if I'm hearing you right, he actually doesn't talk about communication as a as a formal attribute or the elements therein. I would I would say it's probably a, dis, a point of discussion this afternoon, but I'm interested in your viewpoint and Dom's viewpoint is that I think of communication more as an attribute or the elements of communication more as an attribute and not so much of a skill. And that that to your point, they need you need to put yourself in a place where you actually have to be uncertain, be challenged. Uh, be stressed so that you actually see where you are have deficit and then manage that deficit or mobilize that deficit in some sense. Thoughts? 
Yeah, Dom, do you want to go since I've been talking no, a bit? No, no, go for it. Okay. Um, so Scott, you know, I want to make sure I'm clear. I I totally understand and appreciate what you're saying. The 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 only alternative I would I would suggest, and it's an alternative just because again, this is the area that I've chosen to nerd out about, right? Is and I, I don't like using this phrase because it's been I think it's a protective phrase that academics have used, but in this case, the literature would disagree that it's not a skill. Now, this is where I have to give credence to a gentleman named Owen Hargy um, that, that leads much of this, but they do talk about it as not only a skilled behavior, but a strategic enterprise. And I'll give you one definition, right, of which there's many, as you can imagine, right? Academics love their definition. This one would be from, uh, from Hamilton 2014. He defines communication as a process, which I think that word is important in general, right? It goes back to Adam's great question of how do we manage this in large groups and what have you. And I said that it's a continual, it's a continual thing, right? It's not a Dr. Phil moment. It's not a, it's not a Gandalf. Here's my scepter. Now listen, it's a process by which people share ideas, thoughts, and feelings in commonly comprehensible ways. Now, six things that we go through, and, and if you're wondering how I have this somewhat memorized, it's because this is a cornerstone of our apprenticeship. And we've always got to lead with this because we want to start our two-day seminar with, with a sense of mutual understanding. So, you know, Hargi would say that, you know, communication is a skill that is a prerequisite actually for scaled learning, whether that was the use of stories, right? Uh, back when we were just tribal creatures that didn't really have a full understanding of the world, world but we use stories as the preeminent culturally dominant force to teach lessons. Um, we know that communication develops personal identity and, and theory of mind. Hargi also goes on to say that it's, and this is fascinating, because uh, I think it was a wake-up call even to me, is communications necessary for survival, let alone success, right? Like, we're, the, we're at the top of the food chain because we're the preeminent social animal on this planet. You know, not because we have fangs and claws and superhuman strength. Gorillas would rip us apart. All these other animals would destroy us. But because we're the preeminent social animal and we're able to get together in groups and we were able to communicate and that, that improved our hunting capabilities, our tactical capabilities, right? We're where we're at. Um, we know that it improves one's ability to cope with stress. It's the basis of social capital. And then let's not forget the biggest thing that's perhaps most relevant to this moment in history. It's prophylactic against mental degrad degradation, degradation and mental illness literally the harshest treatment you can do to somebody in a world that kills people via firing squad, lethal injection, we, we murder and we do all these awful things is social isolation. You will actually see parts of the human brain shrink when people are socially isolated. So collectively, these researchers go on to say communication is not just a skill. It's, it is the essence of the human condition. Uh, Dom, a little bit of, you know, not to get dark, if Dom unfortunately went silent right now and he just passed out and we don't know what's wrong with Dom, right? This recording's ongoing. Dom's not saying anything to us, but you better believe Dom's communicating and he's communicating that something is wrong. And then that's a whole nother conversation of what's different about communication and interpersonal skills. I think where I'll leave it and then open it up, you know, to again, more dialogue is, you know, I want it to be clear. My fascination started with this when I was hospitalized. 
than trying to make sense of why these nurses and doctors who are the world's best communicated with us as patients like we were creatures and leaned upon medication and things like that as opposed to trying to, you know, th- these people customized their coffee in the morning more than they did their communication strategy to us. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and that, and that's something we all do. And then th- this amplified for me when I got into motor learning and my master's degree in queuing. And so then it became a motor learning based thing. I'm going to tell you right now, where like, we know that all communication occurs within a particular context, as does the wielding of most skills. Right. The, the, even if we're only even if I'm just talking to the, the training nerd that says, yeah, yeah, Brett, Scott and Dom, whatever. Tra- it's still all I want to talk about is training. Great. But you need to understand that your communication and that athlete's perception and interpretation of not only your demonstrations, but what you're asking of them is the largest thing that affects their ability to learn that skill you're asking, whether it's a shuffle or a clean or what have you. So we've got to identify three real things. The context, which can collectively be the situation, circumstances in which an act occurs. So right now, online via Zoom with three coaches slash practitioners interested in helping others, right? Communication, we know that from earlier, the process by which people share ideas and thoughts in commonly comprehensible ways, facts and statistics, metaphors, stories, what have you, and then the fit between them, right? Because when we have the context, the nature of our communication, of course, the audience and the fit, which is that attunement of the audience and what we're saying and how we're saying it and the mediums in which we're sharing it. Now we start to understand the messiness of this. And mind you, those are just three components of the communicative process of which there's eight. So if most people think about the fact, if you're like, what, what's another thing we can do to get better, as opposed to having clear definitions and an understanding of the why we got here, if we would just lead with understanding, and I can't take credit for this, this is called the coordinated management of meaning theory, fancy term for a very basic thing, right? Again, you got to laugh at some of the research behind it. If people went into most situations understanding that misunderstanding is actually the baseline, right? That's what this theory says is if I go out and talk to my neighbor right now, who's mowing his lawn for God knows what reason at 141, if, if I just understand that no matter what I say, even if we know each other, he has yet to know what I'm going to ask of him or why, right? It's, it's every, every interaction is new, regardless. If we, if we think of the baseline is misunderstanding and communication is a tool and a skill that bridges that gap, we'd be better off. Now, mind you, that sounds a lot like empathy. It's not because empathy is I feel what you feel. I don't go into that discussion with a level of misunderstanding because I know I want to say something to him that I understand clearly. This is more compassion. I understand what you may feel. And I have the theory of mind to consider that myself, you know, which is why on this conversation with you guys that are interested and I'm reading your body language, you look interested, not annoyed. So I'm elaborating on another podcast where I know they just want me to get to it and talk about my athletes, I'll give them an above the fold headline and invite for them to ask me more, much like a barber. Hey, Mm -hmm. what do you do for a living? That guy doesn't (laughs) give a shit what I do for a living. You know, I just, I'm a teacher. Oh yeah. What do you teach? Uh, Athletes, coaches, and communication skills. Now, if he asks for more, I'll elaborate, but I've learned too often that the minute I'm like, Oh, a strength coach or this or a speaker you know, oh, that's cool. You know, my brother did that. And then we're on to something new. They're polite, oh, but they don't care. Oh, oh that so, is my biggest trigger. 
when someone <laughs> uses your answer to then go on onto their story. Yeah. So, so. And that's why sometimes I don't even communicate as much as I would like to maybe because I'm I just get annoyed by that. People who yeah. and to your point earlier you mentioned when someone talks you know, often people will actually be thinking about what they're going to say next. And it's obvious. I mean, and now we're doing an interview, obviously I'm doing a bit of the same. I think we always do, but um, for some people, it just seems so strong. Like you can tell all they think about is when they're going to come up with their answer, which is in fact, not an answer. It's more of a new statement or a new story. And it's just so annoying. Yeah. Well, Dom, I mean, that, that's the fun of using improv as, as a medium to bridge this gap. So would you guys like, would you play along for a minute? Sure. Oh man. Yeah. Great. So, so Scott and Dom, you guys are the players here. Now, this is a trap. Nobody's going to win, right? Now, you're, you're both, we've been talking about this. So you're both already aware, you're attuned. You're, you're going to do better than most people. But we're going to start level one. So Mr. Livingston, this is as if we were teaching somebody a split squat, right? As part of a lunge progression or what have you, right? This is very basic. You guys won't screw this up. There's only one rule, Okay. It, you guys are, uh, Dom, you will ask Scott a question. It can be about anything, a pink elephant, your desk, whatever. Scott, you have to respond with another question, okay? It doesn't have to be relevant. It can be closed and open-ended, whatever, right? But this, like, just go ahead. We're going to see how many we can get until one of you makes the mistake of answering that question or not actually asking a question at all. So Dom, start us off. So would you use a pen or a pencil to take your notes right now? Um, are you uh, in Vancouver right now? I wonder if you should take water or coffee because you seem tired and I would recommend you take a coffee. Do you take coffee? I'm just wondering what the temperature is like in Vancouver right now. <laughs> like, do, do you wear your glasses to, you know, to, to read or, or do you wear them to drive as well? And actually, uh, like, talking about driving, like... Um, you know, are you still going to Montreal every week from Trombla? Where'd you get those headphones, Tom? They're really nice. Good. So pretty solid. Now, a couple of you made a couple of questions that were really statements, <laughs> raises a question. But now if we made that a level up and I said, uh, you actually have to respond precisely. So if Dom said, are you driving to Montreal every week? Now you have to keep what we, what we uh, define as good orchestration. Orchestration is thought of like, as relevance synchrony, right? Are you actually responding to what he's asking, right? Because that goes back to what Dom said. People will ask a question just to go off on a tirade of their own. That's poor orchestration. Yeah. The visual depiction of good orchestration would be like volleyball players, bump, set, spike, right? You're setting the other person up for success. So now try to do it one more time, staying relevant to one thing. Let's say the topic is bowling, okay? I'm choosing it for you. We're elevating constraints. You have to start with the topic of bowling. Scott, ask Dom a question. Dom, do you like 10-pin or uh, is it 5-pin bowling? I think it's 5-pin, but better. Well, actually, I, I, I don't like bowling, period. That's a statement. So, boom. Like, you got to ask a question. Oh, it's I still, have to go back on a question. Yes. And oh, but it, it has, has to, to be relevant to bowling. It has to okay, be relevant sorry. to bowling. Okay. So, I'll pick that up again. Then I Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Probably. Do you like so, 10 or 5-pin so I would bowling? say. Um, five pin, I think it's, uh, it's something that, you know, needs more precision, doesn't it? So notice how he answered first and then led with a question to, to win quote unquote, it's just gotta be a straight question. So, well, what's 10 pin bowling? 
Would you believe okay. that it's a harder way okay. to do it? Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Right. So this, listen, okay. these are very basic activities, but they're hard, right? Yeah. We understand that they're hard. And these are, these are basic improv games. Now that's not what we do at our workshops. We might do that to break the ice and get people to loosen up yeah. and, and highlight an elemental truth. The point is, is what we do is real life role playing. So we'll say, Hey, what's a constraint somebody's dealing with? Ah, uh, I'm trying to ask for a raise at work and my boss is intimidating. Great. I want to see this interacted. I need two people and we get people from different professions to interact and we may, we may line it up for them. And then what we do is we want to explore possible futures because think about it. Nobody really gets to rehearse and refine for some of their biggest moments in life. So now we're like, how could this go worse? Maybe we assign one of the role-playing agents an archetype. Maybe one of them is irascible. Maybe one of them is demeaning. Maybe one of them is this, right? And then we see how could we make it better? We'll even have one elevate their tone of voice, lower it. We throw all mm. kinds of muddiness into it. And what's funny is generally, not often, but generally, we'll get somebody that's like, well, this isn't, this, uh, this isn't, uh, this would never happen. And what's great is we usually have somebody else in the audience like, oh yeah, let me tell you about last week for me. You know, that, that happened in our most recent one where somebody said uh, a certain situation that we purposefully elevated to be pretty, pretty tough, right? Because um, we look at this as overload. Like This is the equivalent of putting more weight on the bar or increasing repetitions or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but this person was like, this wouldn't happen. A firefighter slash paramedic says, you want to bet? Because what do you know? Firefighters and paramedics have to do role-playing all the time. They have to look at the adjacent possible. So these things that are really goofy and seem not relevant sometimes are actually great examples of things that happen all the time in interactions. Somebody didn't listen. Somebody tried to assert themselves. Somebody brought non-relevant information into the scene. They broke up the, do, do, does it make sense what I'm saying or am I mm -hmm. off in la la land? It's beautiful. One of the and things that, that more and more started to step ahead, in, no. I was talking with a, a very, probably one of the top psychologists here in Canada with, with athletes. Um, and he works with the uh, short track speed skating team. And he actually, he was telling me a couple of weeks ago, this whole thing that he started now, like maybe over uh, since the Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018 anyways. And it's all about this role play thing. Like he gets them out of their comfort zone completely. Cause you can imagine like training for short track speed skating, right? It's not like a football game. It's you go in circle and circle and always the same way. And, you know, you wanted to, open to their creativity and taking decision because it's a sport where tactic is key. Like it, they're so tight. And for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, you know, because we talk to people all across uh, the States, I'm hoping right now, like it's not a famous sport in the state. It's pretty famous and it's popular, I should say, in Canada. And man, like sometimes you have like on the relay, there's like pretty much there's like 30 plus athletes on that small rink. It's like a hockey rink. And they do relays and all of that. So basically his point was that we need, I need to do some to force them out of their comfort zone to start thinking differently. Well, and, and this is, this is, that's a, it's a great point. You look at what they did with futsal, right? They shrunk the field, they tightened it. But here's my question to both of you. What do coaches do to practice? What a coach are you, right? We have, we have athletes that go through walkthroughs, boxers and fighters will shadow box against imaginary opponents Military will do war games. Folks in the medical side will act like there's a power outage or certain technology is not available. Mm -hmm. What do coaches practice? Well, I know what strength coaches do to practice. They just lift weights and they, they love they they do the thing they're already good at. And then they tell everybody else to get uncomfortable and that it'll help them grow. Yet a lot of them insulate themselves from a communication. Yeah, how are you a coach if you're not practicing coaching? 
And then you doing your job and saying that's practice is like saying that an athlete playing their game is the only way or their sport is the only way they improve. Do you appreciate the cognitive dissonance of this? You know, like this is what is crazy to me. And I, and I point the finger at myself just as much as because until I stumbled on uh, the wake up call of what I was studying, my master's and communication and queuing and yada, 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 and the the different ways in human behavior is influenced. I was obsessed with technical tactical as well. Mm -hmm. And then I still have an appreciation from it, but like, you've got to wake up at some point and say, what am I a coach? What is coaching by definition, an interactive process that requires social interaction? How am I practicing that? I coach every day. No, that's not practicing. Saying you play your sport every day is not the same as practicing. And better yet, when do we do it under constraints? When do we do it under um, external guidance? Oh, me and my staff do this all the time. Your staff, you trust your staff to give you the feedback that you don't want to hear. Yeah. Come on. I don't care what hiring practice you have, what kind of culture you have. Your staff is not always going to tell you the things you want to hear. They're not. So, so how do you do it? How, how do you, you get around people and other, prof- I mean, I'm biased. I'm telling you what, that's what we've tried to create with our apprenticeship. Yeah. We yeah. have, we have the workshops where people from every field have come FBI agents, HR representatives, nurses, firefighters, strength coaches, sport coaches. You get people in a wide variety of spaces in and have them work through role-playing scenarios under constraints, under evaluations of self. So we have an evaluation form that everybody after a role-playing scenario and they get videotaped, they evaluate themselves. How well did they play the role that was assigned to them? And then what we do is let's say I played the role, right? Um, You and Scott, Dom, and every other attendee would then give me your perception of how I did. So a peer evaluation, right? All on this sheet. And then what we do is we rewatch it. We rewatch it. I regrade myself based on me hearing all your, uh, um, uh, your criticisms, right? Which we need to have. It's a day one agreement. You're not going to win this weekend. It's, it's a trap. We're putting you under constraints so that we are under elevated, right? Like, and that's, what's fun about it. Really growth minded people come and they laugh at their inadequacies. But then once we've regraded now, here's what we do. Cause we have my egocentric bias, me grading myself, your individual bias, you grading me. Now we get you into groups or pods and we say, now we need the group bias. So you guys collectively get in groups. You might argue, I gave Brett a one. Here's why. Scott might say, I give him a three. Somebody from the Philippines might be like, "Uh uh-uh. In my culture, he would have been perceived like this. That's a two. And you come up with a cumulative score. And what we're not worried about is a perfect score. There's no perfect coach. There's no perfect communicator. That's not the goal. I do not want to teach people to communicate like me. That would be awful. Dom, you wouldn't want people to communicate like you. We want people to be aware of how they communicate. So what we're worried about is the perceptual gap. At the end of it all, Scott has consistently given him threes, himself threes, but everybody else has given him ones or worse yet, zeros. Scott, there's a gap to bridge. And what's nice about the model is Scott theoretically could come to five different apprenticeships in five different cities, in five different countries with five different subsets of different professionals that are there, and he'd never have the same score. So we don't need to do a level one and a level two and a level eight, because it's a different experience every single time based on the people we're around. Sounds like real life. Sounds, <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like what happens every day. Yeah. Well, I, I want to pivot off. Like, what's that? Just, 
to close it on that though like yeah, is it a week-long program like uh, so we, ideally that and i'm glad you asked that ideally when we constructed this because you know like you a weekend workshop is not enough to teach. No, you know. exactly. But we also have to adapt to the constraints of, of people that are like, I can't get away from work. Or we had a coach the other day be like, can you put your workshop on an app? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. And he's like, well, I can't get away for two days. I'm like on a weekend. And so we wanted it to be at least four days, Dom. Unfortunately for this deri- variation of it, we did two because that's another way that we need to get people indoctrinated. Imagine this, Dom. Imagine us saying, we have this problem. Communication is not sexy. People aren't aware of it. Role playing scary. Getting around strangers is scary because people want self-protection, self-enhancement, whatever. Uh, and it's four days and you've got to spend $1,500. We've created so many barriers there that what we're really trying to do is we're trying to just get people to, to we're trying to make it as easy as possible for people to get a taste. So even though we don't want to teach it in two days, we teach this version in two days. We are going to make another version that is four days more immersive, right? The goal, but if we made it four days right off the bat, we lose because now we're adding another barrier for people to do it. I hate to say it, but yeah. if you look at it, it's very much how drug dealers, you know, were so successful with, with kids and youth, right? Like they get them hooked at a young age through low barriers. They're they're on the corners, easy access. And you can look at, I know it might be a super inappropriate uh, thing to reference, but we have to talk about how s- things become systemic. Ease of access, low barrier of entry, you know, what have you. And then that becomes something that, the, so we want to do that, but in a positive way. No. We want the drug here to be a little bit of humility, maybe have a little bit of fun. Like if I tell you, Dom, hey, day one, nice to have you, brother. Be ready to laugh and get frustrated. But here's the thing everybody here is mutually bought in, in terms of this being about learning through failure and not getting caught up on ego. And we all want to help each other get better. You know what I mean? And, and that's the thing coaches aren't doing now. Like they're just going to shit where they play it safe, right? Everybody just, Hey, let's do what we're good at. Let's get around other people that, you know, they, they like this. Let's not have any tough talk. I get in on these games because it's fun for me as a facilitator to show my imperfections. Because why, what, what am I supposed to be there and be like, Hey, I know everything. I don't, Mm -hmm. I have days I communicate awful as a spouse this is a, this is a process. It's, it's situational. None of us are great at it. That's why we need to practice it. To pull the thread off of a couple of things that you just said and sort of try to bring this to conclusion, cause I want to honor everybody's time. But um, to me, one of the, you talked about the, it starts with understanding. And at the end of the day, I'm curious, both from you, Don, because you've coached other ethnicities and you, Brett, because you actually commented on, on somebody from uh, Indonesia having in their comment. One of the things that's really interested me ever since I did some work in Oman was how different cultures look at the same thing with a completely different lens. And, you know, Dom, you, you coach the Japanese team, you coach Japanese athletes, fundamentally understanding also infers that one needs to recognize that you have your bias perception on the way you actually filter the information and how you come to recognize or understand the other person's and cultural perspective on something. And that's a big, that's a big can of worms to get into, but it's, I was always interested in it when I worked at the national hockey league, cause you had Czech guys, Finn guys, Swedish guys, French guys, English guys, you know, mm-hmm. everybody came from different places and they looked at the same problem 
with completely different viewpoints. Just wanted to put that out there yeah. for both of you. I'd love to hear your again, Dom, your experience in Japan, and then come back to Brett to sort of maybe cycle again, back. And the key is the in you know getting that engagement that Brett kept you know kept talking about, and that that buy-in ultimately, right? That's that's the key. And when I worked with the Japanese, that's what I realized. It's it's not, I, I can't force things. I just gotta you know integrate myself slowly, understanding them, having them understand me, and 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 then we can get to that place where we communicate you know really right like because at first it's a society for example in japan where it's it is the most extreme you do this and you, you're told to do that and you do that right you don't even question it now the new generation is changing and i was dealing with young japanese athletes so that's you know back in 2002 to 2006 they were you know late teens in general so for example they don't even really eat with chopsticks i was using chopsticks better than them so just you know stupid image but to give you a context of how things are changing there so now they're starting to ask more why question things a bit more um, but the key thing there was that i i had to come to a place where i gained their trust if i don't gain their trust i'm just this they call them gaijin the people who are not you know japanese but live in japan and i was just a gaijin coming in to get my big salary and then go back to Canada where it's all I care about, but it was not. I really cared about my athletes and they had to feel that. And it took, I would say almost two years to really get to that fully, you know, trust relationship. And it took a lot of my, my tailoring of my communication and adapting to a society, but adapting to everyone within that group. There was about between 10 to 14 athletes, depending on the moment of the year. Uh, and, and, to me, that, that's something that I took away from my four years in Japan was that, and I'm trying to apply it. And to me, that was, I guess, you know, when I ask you, Brett, how do we work that getting out of the comfort zone? I, I guess I did. I didn't, never really realized it, but that's how I went and did my course on, on real communication and trust building, relationship building. Um, and I still need to do more. But uh, as you were talking, I'm like, well, I never did these Come hang out with us. Come, outdoor, come on out. I'm we yeah, we super interested. Well, yeah, yeah. Once you can travel, we we do them all over. And so, yeah. we, well, I mean, I'll be in California for the next year, so it should be easy. My wife is going to Stanford, so uh, I'll be there from I guess after the Olympics, after if they happen, the Tokyo Olympics, then I'll be moving there for a year. So, and what what date that would that be? So uh, the closing ceremonies are on the 9th of August. And on the 10th or 11th, I should be down in Palo Alto. So Beautiful. Yeah. I think we have one in uh, uh, the Seattle area, but we'll definitely do some in California. I'm glad you brought up cool. Japan and, and the example. Was that word Gaijing, if I heard it correctly? Gaijing, yeah. We're Gaijing, all, yeah. right? And so we look at that, right? And it's this misinterpretation of, of you coming out there as if it's a sinecure, right? Like, ah, oh, this is just some easy kind yeah. of high-paying gig. And, yeah. and the Japanese aspect of it is uh, very relevant because we think of uh, the, what happened as a result of the Potsdam declaration during world war two, and this idea of a misinterpretation, uh, of the word mokusatsu, right. And there is a great article written about this uh, called one word, two lessons. And we talked about this at the event, because we, again, we try to highlight the, the ramifications of mistranslations, misinterpretations, miscommunications. I feel like I just made a rap song. And the idea of this, for anybody that hadn't heard of it that, that's listening, and this was new to me too, is we, we look at these, and, and I'm not fluent in Japanese, but this is as I understand it, right? Uh, you know, moku uh, roughly translates into silence and, and satsu kill, and the, it means this act of, of keeping a contemptuous almost silence. And so when the United States had said, you know, basically, hey, we, we would like 
a declaration of surrender. And at the time, I remember the emperor of Japan, as the story goes, um, had had basically uttered the word mokusatsu in response to somebody asking him what what they thought of what America said during the Potsdam Declaration. And the word was possibly misinterpreted by the United States, right? Because uh, they thought that Japan used it ambiguously. And this interpretation of basically the China, the Japanese emperor saying what he thought was, we, we don't have a comment at this time, or I'm not going to comment at this time. America thought it, they were saying it's not worth commenting on. Right. As in, we don't perceive this threat to be a serious one and not that long off after. And I don't remember it well enough, so I don't want to lie. The bomb was dropped. Right. And so when we think of the ramifications, again, of poor communication, aren't we awfully cavalier in a thing that has caused bombs, marriages, all these things like, you know, it's crazy. And then and when we think about attributes, Scotty, and I'd, I'd love to, you know, be a fly on the wall of your conversation this afternoon. When we look at leadership, uh, you know, attributes that are considered effective in most cultures are somebody that's visionary, somewhat dynamic, consistent, skilled, trusting, uh, you know, dependable, what have you. But what we find is varied across cultures, meaning these things are not always valued across cultures. Let's look at one ambition, right? We, in some cultures, right, in American culture, oh, pioneer spirit, ambi- let's go bigger and better and faster. In some cultures, right? Nah, we're putting the long game and we, we, and, and then they may be more cautious, which in the Western side of the world, huh, do we always want to be that? So we look at caution, being cautious, ambitious, compassionate, humble, independent, risk-taking. These things are fluid. They're not equally valued across cultures. And that also goes into, again, understand the context. Me teaching uh, a course or an apprenticeship here received very differently over there. And it's very similar to traits and behaviors, right? We, we think narcissism is bad. Well, sure, if that is a trait, which is a stable disposition where you're always narcissistic, but if that's a selectively deployed behavior, a la, I'm a brain surgeon who is the best in the world at operating on tumors. Well, guys, I hate to tell you, uh, if I have to get a brain tumor removed, I want to go to the most narcissistic surgeon possible because we need people to want to be the fastest in the 100 meter dash. We need people to do. So you see, this gets very dicey and mm-hmm. it gets very dicey at the messaging we're sending coaches and leaders in general. Because I use the term synonymously of what is good and bad and false dichotomies. And that's led us to a world right now where you couldn't get more black and white. You couldn't get more black and white and people couldn't be further away, all because of the 1% on both sides steering the narrative ubiquitously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I don't know if you've ever read the uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers, but he talks about Korean airlines. And there's this chapter in, uh, about how it was the worst airline in the world for a long time. And they had a terrible record of crashes. And when they finally did a big forensic deep dive on it, it was effectively because the two pilots, the because of hierarchical learning and the culture, the co-pilot would never tell the pilot if he was doing something wrong. And literally, there were cases where the pilot was flying the plane into a mountain and the co-pilot would not say anything and they crashed. And so they had to, you know, they had to go back in, but when they did the assessment and then the retraining, they had to realize that there's different ways, like an American culture versus a Korean culture, the way they interpret information is 
categorically different. It's just you, you couldn't find two different ways of interpreting information, intonation, tonality, all these different things. Like, you know, when you talk about communication, and you know this very well, is, you know, the words are one thing. They're a very small element of it. It's actually your facial expression, your tonality, and these things have far more importance. So, you know, somebody who's a New Yorker is like, come on, da, 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 versus a Korean is like, yes, sir, you know, or whatever, da, you know, like they, they interpret information completely different. It's, it's incredible. So. Yeah. Well, and, and Scott, that's a great example. And that's why, Don, you know, we have no desire to teach people one way to communicate. That would be, that would be awful because we could go into a New York, you, you mentioned the New Yorker, we could watch two New Yorkers, you know, doing that, or we could go into Southie in Boston and watch and we could think, wow, that the pace of speech is 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 ridiculous, and this and and the slang, this is awful. No, that's the context and the fit. That they're excellent communicators because they're shared understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that if there was one trait or behavior, you were saying, hey, Brett, all right, well, that's interesting information. Then what's what's the one thing that you think is universal that people need to have to improve communication? Real simple, right? It's it's one of the big five traits: uh, openness to experience. Because here's the thing, right? My, 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 unfortunately, my log line sometimes for people is, hey, how is working, how is coming to the workshop and working on communication and having conversations with strangers about these things? How's it going to make you worse? How, how is, how is just engaging with information around communication going to make you worse? Sadly, Scotty, as you know from the text I sent you the other day, you still have people that basically say, yeah, but I bartended for 15 years. I think I know how to talk to people. What do you do? What do you do with that? You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you, and then that's a real response. It's, it's almost alarming where it's not, you know, not that it's not worth a response. Everybody's worth your time. But like, I just realized that that's the Bruce Lee. The teacher will appear when the student is ready. There's nothing I could say to that individual to get them to change their mind. You know, that, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking. I'd lie if I didn't tell you it was, it was heartbreaking. Well, I, you know, I commend you for your mission, but and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on today is because I respect the, you know, the work you're doing so much. And I thought you would enjoy meeting Dom and Dom would enjoy yeah, meeting absolutely. you. Yeah, absolutely. You guys much. will probably connect again at some future point, but thanks uh, for, sure. for ta- I, I want to kind of conclude because we, we did ask you for an hour and we're a little over now. So. Man, it goes by fast every <laughs> It goes by fast. It does go by fun. fast. <laughs> Hopefully Listen, it goes guys. by fast for our listeners, but I, I yeah, exactly. It was awesome, Brett. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for the discussion prompts. They were uh, they were phenomenal. We'll simulcast this on our podcast as well. Cool. That'll be awesome. That's awesome. Well, guys, uh, thanks everybody for the time today. It was a fantastic conversation. As usual, when I get the, this guy on on any session with me, and also with Dom. So, uh, thank you for your time, guys, and have a great day. Take care, Bye, guys. Scotty. Bye.